So have you ever come to the end of a novel and thought there was something missing? You've made it all the way, you've gotten to the end, and you thought, well, there's some loose ends that, that weren't tied up. Maybe you had a question about, well, what happened to these characters in the years after the conflict? Or maybe you just felt like it'd be nice at the end to have just a final summary of kind of what you've been trying to get us to see in all of this. A, a, a final summary of what was truly important. Well, friends, that's where a good epilogue can really serve a character, uh, uh, the reader. See, it comes at the end of the final chapter. It's, it's often set in the future, uh, some distance removed from the, the conflict that it's been seeking to resolve. And it, it can provide a sense of closure in a way that often the final chapter can't do. Now, an epilogue shouldn't replace a well-written ending, okay? If the author doesn't write a, a well-written ending, that, that's on them. But what an epilogue can do is, is it gives you a sense of kind of what happened uh, to the characters, you know, after the story um, has ended. Uh, or maybe you're not, not as much of a reader. You, you, you like uh, watching movies. Anyone remember The Sandlot? There's a nice epilogue at the end where it tells you what happened to these guys as they, as they grew up. What, what happened to Squints? What happened, you know, to all of, these, uh, all of these guys? What happened to Benny? He became the Jet Rodriguez, right? And it's helpful. It, it just lets you kind of feel like, okay, we, we, we've come full circle. And it can also reiterate these important themes and lessons and even give us a glimpse or a possibility of a next installment. Well, this morning... We come to the end of this book of beginnings. It's the 44th sermon in our series through the book of Genesis. We've been walking chapter by chapter. And this last chapter, chapter 50, reads like an epilogue. You see, the main plot line of this final movement has already concluded. Right? Remember the whole, the whole conflict with Joseph and his brothers and, and what would happen to them and, 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 and sending them back and forth. And all of that's happened. And yet in these last few uh, verses, it, it's kind of bringing all of that to a conclusion. And these final verses serve as an epilogue and it ties up loose ends. And we see a reiteration of some of the most important themes that we've learned throughout the book of Genesis. In fact... It also points us that maybe there's something more coming. And in fact, there is. Like Exodus just picks right up where Genesis leaves off. And if you haven't been with us all this time, you're in luck because it kind of summarizes the main points of the book. And as we walk through this last chapter, we're going to see four final lessons. These are four lessons that Moses says before you leave Genesis... Before you go into the next book, it's really important that you, that you have these in mind because they're critical for everything that follows. That's what the book of beginnings is all about. It's setting the stage for everything that follows. So here's the first lesson. And I have them written on the screen too, so you'll be able to write them down and then we'll cover them uh, in detail. So the first lesson is this. Nothing, not even death, can stop the promises of God. Nothing, not even death, can stop the promises of God. See, in the final moments of Jacob's life, he leans into his faith and he finds a courage of conviction to stare death in the face because of his fierce belief in the promises of God. Second, we'll see that we need daily grace to overcome guilt and fear. Following Jacob's death, 
You see, guilt and fear resurface in the lives of the brothers. Maybe you heard that as Andy was reading. They start to question whether Joseph has truly forgiven him or not. And we're going to see that we need daily grace to overcome guilt and fear. Third, that God's providence is the only way to make sense of the world. See, Joseph has learned his theology in the seminary of suffering. And he rests knowing that God is in control. And we find that the way that Joseph makes sense of all the things happening in his life is that God is sovereignly in control. And finally, the last lesson is in the end, God will surely take us home. In the end, death does not have the final word. Though death comes for us all, we can live by faith knowing that God will surely take us home. Those are our four lessons. Let's start in Genesis chapter 49, verse 29, to see our first lesson, that nothing, not even death, can stop the promises of God. So here again, the word of the Lord. Verse 29. Then he commanded them, this is Jacob speaking, said, I'm to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah's wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Now, remember last week, Jacob had blessed his sons And now he's at the the, the final moment. Moments before his death, he gives one final command. And he is emphatic that he does not want to be buried and laid to rest in some extravagant tomb in Egypt. Where does he want to go? Well, he's very clear. He is to be buried with his people in the land of promise. So he wants his bones, his body to be taken back to the promised land in Canaan. Now, if you think about it. The only land that Abraham, this great father of the promise, God told him, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. I'm going to give you all this land. You're going to have descendants like uh, the, 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 the sand on the sea. The only plot of land that he ever owned in all of the promised land was a burial plot. That was it. That's all. When he died, all he could say was, like, this is my only plot of land, was, was a place to be buried. And he had bought it, if you remember, from Ephron the Hittite, east of Mamre at Machpelah. And in that field was a cave. And the occasion for buying that cave was to bury his wife Sarah. Later he would be buried. His children would be buried there. Isaac and Rebekah would be buried there. And now it was Jacob's turn to take his place with his fathers. Now what I want you to see that this is more than just family tradition. This is an act of faith. Well, how do I know that? Well, sometimes the Bible helps us out by commenting on the Bible. And so that's why the New Testament is so important. In a lot of ways, a lot of it is commentary on what's happened. So the book of Hebrews is really all commentary on a lot of things that happened in the Old Testament. And in chapter 11, verse 13 to 16, the writer of Hebrews speaks about this faith-filled moment. He writes this, These all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them, greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, 
they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, don't miss this, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So let me break this down. Who are these people who died in faith? Well, if you read earlier, he's talking about Abraham and Sarah and his descendants. They were the recipients of this promise. They were promised this abundant land, innumerable seed, and that they'd be blessed by God. And yet, the writer of Hebrews tells us they didn't receive the fullness of that promise. So you think about that. There's been all these promises given, and yet their portion of that promise that they realized in real time in their life was very, very small. And so in that moment, you have kind of two options. You can say, well, God is not a promise-keeping God. Look, he, he didn't make good on the things that he said. Or, like the writer of Hebrews says, they saw those promises from afar. You, you remember we said that we, they, they saw them from afar, they greeted them from afar, and they knew that God was a promise-keeping God. And those, so they, they came to this conclusion, listen, this promise must be bigger than just me, must be uh, bigger than, than this moment right now. And so God must be fulfilling the fulfillment of these promises in a way that I might not have thought at first, right? It's not a problem for them to think that maybe God's going to fulfill those promises in their lifetime. But when they're not fulfilled in their lifetime, what does their faith do? Their faith says, oh, so God's plan must be bigger than mine. God's plan, God, God's ways must be different than mine. God must be doing something that I can't figure out now. Isn't it remarkable how often we put God in the judgment seat because we go, well, listen, if I were God, I would fulfill it this way. And if he's not doing it this way, that must mean he's not doing such a good job at being God. Well, that's our pride. That's our arrogance. See, we have no reason to doubt the promises of God. Abraham and Sarah had one child together. That hardly sounds like, you know, an, as, as numerous as sands on the sea and the stars in the heaven. All the land they ever owned was a burial plot. And yet the writer of Hebrews said that they saw the promises of God and greeted them from afar. Think about the, the idea. You, when you're greeting something, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good thing, right? Like, hello, right? It, you're, you're, they're saying, hey, we get it. It's, it. it's good. It's fine that these promises are from afar. They greeted them. They understood that God's promises were bigger than them. They understood that they were strangers and exiles on earth and that their true homeland would come later. And by faith, they didn't return to Ur, right? That's what uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews said is, you know, if they had been looking or, 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 or thinking about their previous homeland, they would have returned home. But instead, they, they had their eyes on a better country, one whose builder was the Lord, a, a city prepared for them by God himself. And that faith and those promises is what was passed down from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob and his sons. That kind of faith, that, that promise. And so you can imagine as each successive generation is hearing from uh, these, these forefathers in the faith that all of this, uh, all th these faith-filled promises are being transferred from one generation to another. And so in this moment, Jacob's request to go be buried there is not just some nostalgic familial tradition. It's a demonstration of his faith and the promises of God. And at the end of his life, Jacob finds rest in the promises of God. He knows. He, he's like, I'm about to die. But guess what? My death does not stop the promises of God. The writer of Hebrews says that the eyes of faith 
enable us to see and greet the promises of God from afar. In order to do that, you have to have eyes of faith. It's the only thing that enables you to see that those, those promises will come to fulfillment. And Jacob has come to this belief. And, I, and one of the reasons I love Jacob is that he's such a scoundrel. He's a terrible person, which gives hope for me, right? That he is, he's always wavering. He's always conniving. He's always doing these things. And yet, at, at the end of his life, because of his faith in the promises of God, what does the writer of Hebrews say? That God is not ashamed to be his God. Well, if God's not ashamed to be his God, he's not ashamed to be our God either. Because we're just like him. See, the writer of Hebrews says, The eyes of faith enable us to see and greet the promises of God from afar. From afar. And Jacob has come to this belief that nothing, not even his own impending death, can nullify the promises of God. And so you see him at the very end of his life, giving his final commands, pulling up his feet into his chest, and, 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 and dying with a peaceful conviction staring death in the face with steel in his back now how does jacob know that he will receive the promises of god even though he's dying well the only explanation is that jacob has some category of life after death certainly not as developed as it will be but he he would not be able to pass you know an eschatology class or a uh uh, you know if there was a quiz on resurrection he would utterly fail but he has some prototype faith that, listen, in order for God to make good on his promises, there's got to be something after this. There's got to be more. It's undeveloped, yes, but it's real. And he has faith that, that, that uh, if he hasn't received the fullness of the promises of God in this life, then there must be life after death because he's convinced God will be true to his word. God will be good to his word. So so it doesn't matter if we have all of the details figured out. That's not what faith is. Faith isn't, hey, when you get all the details figured out, then that's faith. No, no. What did the writer of Hebrews say faith is? Verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So Jacob doesn't see the reality of the fulfillment of these promises, but he has faith that God will do it. He's got this abiding assurance of the things hoped for and a deep conviction that though his eyes haven't laid hold of the realization or the fullness of the promises, that nothing, not even death, can stop them from coming to fruition. Now before Moses wraps up the book of Genesis, he wants to give us a glimpse of that faith. To go, listen, nothing, not even death, can stop the promises of God. The second thing that Moses wants us to see is that we need daily grace to overcome guilt and fear. Now the direction turns to what happened with Joseph and his brothers. Chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and he wept over him and kissed him. Talking about his father. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. And 40 days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. So this final chapter opens up and we get the details of the aftermath of Jacob's death. Jacob dies. Joseph weeps for him. And then preparations are made for his funeral. He's embalmed, which is a good thing because it's a long journey back to Canaan. Right? And that could really get smelly. Okay? So let's embalm him. Let's wrap him up. Make him ready for transportation. And they mourn his death for 70 days. Now listen. It was customary when a pharaoh died... 
to mourn their death for 72 days. That's pretty significant. He gets, the, he gets a funeral just like two days short of what they would give to the Pharaoh. Jacob was, uh, was, was well respected. And I think a lot of that came because of the favor that Joseph had. All the favor that Joseph had in saving Egypt was just transferred to his father. And in the verses that follow, we find that Jacob asks to leave Egypt and return to Canaan to bury his father. And not only does Pharaoh grant his, requ- his request, which was kind of a risky move, because in Pharaoh's mind, if Jacob, if Joseph and all of his family is leaving, they could have hightailed it out of Egypt, right? And he could have lost his most trusted counselor and advisor. But he has so much favor with the Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, go, and not only go, but I want you, I'm going to send you with servants, with elders, and a military escort. Genesis 50 tells us that when they arrive in the land, the inhabitants of that land saw how great this funeral procession was and thought this must be some great king that has died. And then we read, verse 14, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, well, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they get back from Egypt and the brothers start to talk. And they begin to fear that maybe Joseph's forgiveness wasn't real. Or maybe it was just temporary. Maybe they're thinking, you know, Joseph was just playing while Jacob was alive. And now that Jacob is gone, he's about to unleash hell on us. And the guilt from their sin and the past makes them question Joseph's forgiveness. See, that's what guilt can do. I don't know if you're like me, but when I feel guilty, even when I've been forgiven and the matter has been settled, it doesn't take long for that guilt to creep back up. It doesn't take long for it to make me replay my sin over and over. And every time history is rewound and played back, it's like we experience it all anew. And guilt can keep us from accepting the reality that we've been forgiven. And then when we don't feel like we've been forgiven, that guilt then gives way to fear. And though Joseph hasn't done anything to make his brothers question his forgiveness, they just can't get past the feeling that maybe Joseph really hates them. And now that Jacob here isn't here to see it, maybe the time has come for Jake, Joseph to get his revenge and make them pay. Here we see that guilt and fear don't go quietly into the night. Guilt is like mold in the shower. You may spray it, with, spray it with bleach and it goes away for a little bit, but what happens? Given enough time, given enough moisture, it rears its ugly head again. That's what guilt does. You may be able to get past it for a minute, but it will come back again. So, verse 16, they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and his sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God, your father. So to deal with their guilt and fear, they come up with this plan. Like, hey, Joseph, before you died, dad had a talk with us. And he told us that you should really forgive us for everything that happened. So, you know, if you're not going to forgive us, do it for dad. That's basically what's going on here. But it's very unlikely that Jacob said anything to this. 
If you remember, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. They had a good relationship. So if Jacob wanted to tell him something, he would have just told Joseph himself. Certainly not to his lying sons. And we pick it up again in verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. If you read the Joseph story from 37 on, you'll find that Joseph weeps seven times in that, uh, in that length of time. Now that strategic seven is a really important number uh, in Hebrew. And so, the, so Moses is doing something here and he's drawing our attention to the weeping of Joseph. And here's what's remarkable. Think of all that Joseph went through in his life. Being falsely accused, being thrown into a pit, being beaten by his brothers, being uh, thrown into prison, all these things. You notice Joseph never weeps for himself. All of his tears are for other people. Joseph has an others-centered kind of love. Throughout all he's been through, he never weeps over his own affliction or suffering. His tears of compassion are always connected to other people. And so there's several times we see Joseph weeping as, as, as he works through the reconciliation process with his brothers. You remember that? Several times he has to go behind the curtain before he wants them to know who he is. And he's weeping when he hears them talking about what happened. He weeps when he's reunited with his father. He weeps when his father passes away. And here his final tears come as he weeps over the notion that his brothers are are all, all this time continue to be weighed down by guilt and crippled by fear. Think about that. It breaks Joseph's heart that they're not walking in the grace and forgiveness that he's extended to them. So what does Joseph do? He reassures them of, of his forgiveness. He tells them not to fear. Twice he does that. He tells them that he's committed to providing for them and their children. He speaks kindly to them and he comforts them. In this epilogue here, we see real life playing out. Again, one of the reasons I love Genesis is it just seems like my real life. Like how many times have you gone through relational conflict and yet maybe years later, it's like you're having to go back through it again because guilt and fear have reared their ugly head. See, we can receive grace and forgiveness. You can be told, I forgive you. But often what happens? We need to be reminded of that grace and forgiveness. See, Joseph doesn't downplay their sin against him. That's not how you reassure someone. You don't say, listen, it wasn't a big deal. No, no, it was a big deal. What they did was evil. And in fact, he calls it that. He says, listen, what you were doing, I know you meant it for evil. You had malice in your hearts. And it's a good thing to call evil what it is. It is a good thing to say true things about what something is. But what does he do? Instead of seeking revenge, he trusts the Lord to deal with it as he sees fit. That's why Joseph says, am I in the place of God? He says, listen, when it comes to ultimate judgment and condemnation, that's like above my pay grade. I know I'm a really powerful person in, 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 the, in the land of Egypt, but that's for the Lord. So I'm not in the place of God. 
And then what does he do? He reassures them of his love and forgiveness. Friends, often, as the one who extends forgiveness, listen, you just need to be prepared that it may take several times. You can't go, listen, I told you I forgive you. No, no, that's not compassion. Compassion says, listen, I will tell you you're forgiven as many times as it takes. I will extend grace to you as often as is needed. As the one extending forgiveness, if you're willing to do that, it may take several times to assure the forgiven party that you truly forgive them. That's where extending forgiveness can become this tangible expression of love where you exhibit patience with that person, where you exhibit reassurance and kindness. And while I certainly think there's a lesson to be learned here about how we extend forgiveness in our everyday relationships, I also think, just like things in Genesis, there's always this parallel to something more. Things that are happening on the surface level are often pointing us to something bigger in our relationship with God. See, often at the initial, after the initial uh, transaction of forgiveness, that moment where you're justified where you put your faith in Christ and all of God's love and forgiveness are given to you on the finished work of the gospel, it often takes time for that grace to root out the weight of guilt and fear of rejection. So though we are actually forgiven, objectively, subjectively, it often takes time for us to feel forgiven. You understand the difference? So, so someone can be objectively released from prison and forgiven. The, you know, the judge can say not guilty. But you may feel guilty. You may feel like you are not forgiven. Paul David Tripp has often called this gospel amnesia. And it's a wonderful illustration, right? In the same way that you could um, suffer some kind of trauma and then lose your uh, memory of your own personal identity, right? You don't know who you are anymore. You don't have the memories that, that, that you used to have. You, 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 there, there's something gone wrong. There's amnesia taking place. Paul David Tripp says we can suffer the loss of our spiritual identity from gospel amnesia. We can forget the incredible reality that Jesus died in our place for our sins so that we could be redeemed and reconciled, forgiven, adopted, and loved and recognized all of those words are in the past tense, which means they're done. It's the finished work of Christ. When you are uh, uh, saved, you are redeemed, reconciled, forgiven, adopted, and loved. Those are true realities that are now conferred to you. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you are now a co-heir with Christ, and you are loved and adopted by God the Father. Those are objectively true realities in your life, regardless of how you feel about them. And yet, we can forget our identity in Christ. See, when you forget your identity, does it mean you don't have that identity anymore? No. So if I suffer amnesia, I'm still Clint Patronella, regardless of my memory that I'm Clint Patronella, right? That makes sense? So when you have gospel amnesia, it's not that those things aren't true anymore. You've just forgotten them. And when that happens, guilt and shame and fear will creep back in. And that's why we need daily grace. Just like Jesus said we need daily bread to live, we need daily grace to keep fear and guilt at bay. This is why it's important to stay connected to Christ. So this isn't a one-time transaction. You get what you need from Jesus and then you go about your way. That's not how this works. He gives us what we need for each day. 
We need daily grace. That's why one of the, it's important to weekly gather with other believers. Because you might be suffering gospel amnesia, but guess what? Today I might be in a good place. And I can, as a brother or, uh, or, or, or you as a sister in Christ, can go, hey, no, 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 no. You've forgotten who you are in Christ. You're beloved. Jesus loves you. For the, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. So, brother, sister, lift your head up. You're loved. You're redeemed. You're accepted. You're forgiven. Don't forget who you are. That's what we can do for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why it's important to daily pick up your, the word of God, to be reminded of these truths. Because they're objective. They're not going anywhere. What's on this page stays on this page. And what's true on this page is still true on this page. And so I can read it and remind myself, oh, no, no. He has transferred me from the domain of darkness and, and transferred me into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom I have reconciliation and forgiven. That's right. I forgot. He loves me. We need each other because we so easily forget. Before Moses wraps up Genesis, he wants us to remember and know that this thing is fueled by daily grace. It's the only cure for overcoming guilt and fear. Now look with me at verse 20 to see our third lesson. God's providence is the only way to make sense of the world. We're going to go back to verse 20. I skipped it on purpose because there's a lot of good theology here. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now this verse, if you've been with us over these 44 sermons, we've, used, we've looked into the future at this verse to pull it into the sermon we were on because it's a major theme verse of the whole book of Genesis. And in fact... It's one of those verses that becomes an anchor for the rest of the Bible. And we have talked about God's providence all throughout our study in Genesis. In one sense, friends, you could just open up any chapter in the Bible and there right there is God's providence. Because nothing happens in the Bible or in our lives for that matter that isn't under the purposeful sovereign hand of God. And for a guy without a Bible and no formal theological education, Joseph has a very robust understanding of how the world works. And his theology was learned not in some ivory tower, but in the seminary of suffering. And here's what he's learned. At the end of his life, he's learned, listen, the fate of the world is not left to chance. That's not how this thing works. In fact, God is governing sovereignly and orchestrating all of human history so that his purposes are achieved. And that includes evil. God is sovereign over all of evil. And yet, Joseph knows he's never the author of evil. He's never forcing people to do evil. Do you hear those categories in that verse? He said, you meant it for evil, but those very same things that you were meaning for evil, God meant for good. What is he saying? He's saying people always choose according to their own desires. And they make real, free, responsible decisions. And at the same time, God is overruling and, and orchestrating over all of these things to bring it about his good purposes. So on the one hand, it is equally true that you have human beings, such as yourselves, making real, free, responsible decisions with real consequences. So what you're going to do today really does matter. 
And at the same time, it's also true that you have a purposeful, sovereign God who is never just playing catch up. Never going, listen, what am I going to do in this situation? Didn't see that one coming. I thought they were going to do this, but then they totally threw me off with that other thing that they were going to do. And now i got to go clean that up. That's never the Lord. Never. Verse 20 is Joseph's explanation for why he can extend real forgiveness to his brothers and to trust that the Lord has a good reason to bring about the circumstances as he does. Now listen, Joseph is very clear. Their intentions, their motivation, their actions in selling him into slavery were evil. That's what they were. There's no sugarcoating it. They acted in sinful, evil ways. And yet, somehow, God meant it for good. In this case, we know the whole story, right? Because of the famine and the dreams. And it's been clear that God sent Joseph ahead of the famine to Egypt in order to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Theologian John Frame, one of my favorites, says it like this. We can see God's comprehensive rule in the life of Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, elevated to a position of prominence there, and who delivered his family from deadly famine. He's just summarizing the events of his life, right? And at every point in the story, God is the one who brings about the events of the narrative. God gave Joseph the power to interpret dreams. Remember that? It was God who determined that Joseph's brothers would betray him. We see that in Genesis 45. Again and again, it's God who brings about each event, good or evil, for his good purposes. God did not, listen, this is important. He did not merely allow. We use this language a lot to soften God's sovereignty. We're like, well, well God allowed it. As if there's some other power acting that's more powerful than him. Listen, God just allowed that to happen. God did not merely allow Joseph to be sent in Egypt. Rather, God himself sends him. Though certainly the treacherous brothers are responsible. Throughout the scripture, God stands behind each great historical event. If you were with us when we did Genesis 45, three times Joseph says, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. He is just comfortable saying, listen, somehow this was part of, of God's plan. Now I want to make something very clear. We often use like popular expressions to convey theology. You ever heard uh, of, of taking lemons and making lemonade? Like when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. And somehow, and I've, I've heard Christians say, listen, uh, when, when, when life hands you lemons, God will make lemonade. Like there's these things happening outside of God's control, but don't worry, God's a great, he's got a great lemonade stand out there for you. As if that's supposed to comfort us. That's not what this verse means. God does not take the lemons of your life and make lemonade. It's not that God allows these things to happen and then because he's nice, he takes those bad things that happen to you and does the best, best with what he's got. That's the, that's the sentiment behind, you know, if, when life hands you lemons, you know, take those things and make lemonade. It, it, it's something bigger than that. That's something, it's just not providence. It's not purposeful sovereignty. In other words, what I'm saying is everything that happened, happened exactly as God intended it. None of the events in Joseph's life or the book of Genesis or your life for that matter or any event in human history happens by accident. Nothing. Genesis 50.20 is just the Old Testament version of Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now listen, Joseph and Paul, 
who both have PhDs in suffering, right? They probably, on their own, suffered more than, the, than, than us as a collective whole. They were comforted that none of their suffering was meaningless, pointless. That none of it was coming from something beyond God. Their comfort was ultimately that all of it was planned and guided by a God who is sovereignly in control over every event of human history and that God's love for them was undeniable. That's what gave them comfort. And I know this is hard for us to understand because it seems like these truths are in tension. You know what I mean by tension? So you have on one hand over here, well, how is it then, this is where we put on our philosophy caps, how is it then that you have human beings making real free, responsible, and consequential decisions, and yet at the same time have a God who is sovereignly uh, in control over them? How is it that both of those two things are true at the same time without mutually excluding or contradicting one another? And this is where, this, this, if, you'll get this, um, if you'll get this category in your head, of truth and tension, it'll open up so many of these complexities in the Bible where you go, listen, the Bible says these things are true. The Bible never says I have to understand how they're true because you're not God. You should expect actually that there's going to be things about God you don't understand. So when you say, well, God, how is it then that you've created a world where truths that seem like to my brain that are contradictory, but in your economy, are both true at the same time. And he's going, Hand, let me handle the God stuff. You handle being uh, responsible for your decisions and I'll handle being God. Truth intention is not truth in contradiction. Both are true. It's equally true that Joseph's brothers meant and intended evil against Joseph and that that human decision is one for which they are responsible. God didn't coerce them. He didn't force them to do it. And yet, their evil intentions against Joseph come under the overruling sovereign plan of God to mean it for good. You notice, Joseph didn't say that what you meant for evil, God turned it for good. Or what, 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 what uh, God allowed in your evil, God changed it for good. No, no. It's not that he took lemons and made lemonade. What he's saying is, you did this, but God also did this. Two things happened. You did evil, but God did good. He planned it. He orchestrated it. He sovereignly controlled all of it to the end of accomplishing his purposes. One of the greatest examples of this is in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If you remember in uh, the first sermon Peter preached at the, uh, on the day of Pentecost, this is the first Christian sermon ever, he's speaking to the men of Jerusalem. Listen to what he says in Acts 2, 22 to 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, God sent Jesus. He did so many things. You should not have mistaken him for anyone except the Son of God. Then what does he say? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says, you guys had Jesus crucified and he was killed by lawless men. That's on you. You have responsibility for that. And yet, what happened? It all happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing was left to chance. Jesus was always going to die that way. All according to plan. And yet, those who killed him were responsible for their actions. 
We don't have to know the burden of knowing and unraveling how those things work together is not our job. It's not our job to know how these truths coexist without contradiction. Just that they do. That's, what's, that's what we're called to do. Our job is not to have it all figured out, but to trust and believe that what we see in the Bible, regardless of our ability to understand how God works it out, that it's true. And so right from the beginning, Moses is saying, if you're going to make your way through the Bible, you've got to have this category of redemptive suffering. As you endure suffering in your life, you need to understand that God is sovereign and in control over all of it. That is to be a warm blanket for your soul. That your suffering is never pointless. It's never meaningless. It never takes God by, uh, uh, like, like he's unaware. It never takes him by surprise. Your suffering in your life has a point to it. It has meaning to it. And it has a redemptive end. And in God's providence, next week, or after Easter, we start First Peter. Which is a whole book on how to live as suffering exiles. That's what the whole book is about. It's a whole volume on how to live faithfully and endure to the end through suffering. Before Moses ends, he wants us to know that God's providence is the only way to make sense of the world. Now quickly, here's our final lesson. In the end, God will surely take us home. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And we're told Joseph lived to be 110. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, don't miss it, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died being 110. Last verse in Genesis. They embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now for a moment, I want you to think about how the book of Genesis begins. Remember in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God was hovering over the face of the deep, right? The book begins with the breath and spirit of God moving across vast oceans of, empty, of emptiness to bring about order and life to chaos and nothingness. The book that begins with God breathing life into lifeless dust ends with a body and a box, a mummy and a coffin. Just think about that. Very first verses, chaos, nothingness, God bringing life and order out of all of it. Genesis ends, Joseph was put in a box. And yet, what does Joseph know? That one day God will bring his family back to the land. Joseph knows Egypt's not their home. Egypt has been good to them in this season, provided refuge for them. But Egypt is not their home. God has promised them the land of Canaan. And he knows, just like his father Jacob, that God will make good on his promises. So even in the face of death, like his father, Joseph is staring death in the face with a peaceful conviction that nothing, not even death, can stop the promises of God. And then what does he do? He says, brothers, listen to me. God will surely take us home. God's not done with us. He will visit us and take us home. So he tells his brothers that whenever that day comes, even if it's generations from now, take this, what I'm saying, and pass it down. Make sure that when the family of God leaves Egypt to bring my bones 
with you. And you know what? 400 years later, that's exactly what happens. When the Israelites are taken, uh, delivered out of Egypt, you know what they carry with them? Joseph's bones. And when they're walking around in the desert on their way to the promised land, they've got the one box, the Ark of the Covenant. Guess what? They got another box, Joseph's bones. And they carry him all the way back to the promised land. As the first book of Moses ends, Joseph dies and he's placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now on the, on the surface, if you don't know anything else about the rest of the story, it looks like death is one, doesn't it? It looks like, man, no matter what they tried to do, each son of promise who came, no one was able to conquer death. Death has disrupted the harmony and abundant life in the garden, and it looks like death gets the final word. In fact, in the book of Genesis, it has like the final word, doesn't it? No son in the line of promise has been able to slay the serpent and undo the curse of death. But what I want us to see is that a seed has been planted here for the great redemption story that follows in the book of Exodus. As Joseph is put in a coffin, the stage is set for God's glory to be revealed. That not even the greatest superpower in the world can stop God's redemptive plan. Now as we look forward to Easter, does this sound like any story you've heard in the Bible before? Where someone was sealed in a tomb and it looked like death had won. And it looked like the son of promise was unable to slay the serpent and undo the curse of death. Remember, as Sally Lloyd-Jones reminds us, every story whispers his name. And this one is no different. As we head into Holy Week this week, in a few days we'll remember the day on which the Lord Jesus suffered in our place for our sins. The day that he was sealed in the tomb and it looked like all hope was lost. But what is it that we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday? That the stone was rolled away? That though the serpent bruised his heel, the son of promise crushed the serpent's head. And on that morning, death itself was defeated. Now, I'm not trying to say that Joseph would have been able to articulate all of that in quite the same way. But Joseph's hope as he entered into death was that one day he would live again in the promised land. This is the Christian hope. We share the same hope with the forefathers of our faith, the hope of resurrection, that one day God will visit us and carry our bones to the promised land. That's why Paul, at the end of his great lecture on uh, resurrection, finishes 1 Corinthians 15 by saying this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says, with the hope of resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That brings us to the end of the book of beginnings. Like a good epilogue, Moses wraps up the loose ends. Jacob is laid to rest. Joseph is laid to rest. We see how their story ends. He sets the stage for the next installment with the book of Exodus. And he reminds us of some of the biggest lessons. That nothing, not even death, can stop the promises of God. All of us need daily grace to overcome guilt and fear. The providence of God is not some theological abstraction. 
but everyday practicality to make sense of the world. And in the end, God will surely take us home. Let's pray.